time for kids to come on up front by your screens. Uh, come on up close, ready to listen for our children's sermon. So here we go. So a week or two ago, I put on my crown, right? And we talked about God being our king. And today we're going to talk more specifically about Jesus Christ as our king. In Luke chapter 19, where we'll be today, as the time is approaching for Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, we read about him entering Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. And as he's entering the city, there are many people giving him praise. They're shouting and hailing Jesus as king. So here's a question for you to think about. Is Jesus really a king? Yes, he is. He is king over everything. He's in control of all things. He is king of all. Now, as we think about kings, many kings aren't good, are they? Many kings actually hurt people. They're oftentimes selfish, and they act on behalf of themselves for their own benefit. A king can treat people poorly. He can take away people's possessions and their money. He can demand that people do things his way. He can even make people slaves to him. So many kings are not good at all. They're not good people, and they actually cause people great harm. But Jesus is not like this. Jesus is a great king who cares deeply for his people. In Luke 19, where we'll be reading today, we're going to read that Jesus wept. He cried over the city of Jerusalem because he cared so deeply for his people. And so Jesus isn't a selfish king who causes harm to his people. He's a good and gracious king who loves his people and who acts for their benefit. In fact, King Jesus loves his people so much that a few days after he entered the city of Jerusalem, he chose to go to the cross and die for his people that their sins might be forgiven. He sacrificed himself for us. He gave himself up for us. Jesus is a king full of love and kindness toward his people. So King Jesus is God. He has great power and authority and is to be worshipped, but he uses his power and his authority to bless us and not to harm us. So Pastor Jeremy's going to come now and preach, and we're going to hear more about Jesus Christ as our King. Thanks, kids, for coming up and listening. All right, thanks again for being willing to uh, bear with the church in this season and uh, log on through our live stream. We are in Luke 19. Uh, we'll be in verses 28 to 48. Uh, Luke 19. Our opening song this morning was from a psalm, Psalm 62, which was about finding rest in God alone. Um, we sang there that Christ is the place where we can find refuge. He crushed death to death, and we can come to him and find rest and mercy. And so Psalm 62 is a song of God's kindness to us, God's care for us, the intimacy and tenderness of God to us. A contrast to that is our closing song, Lead On, O King Eternal. 
We'll sing there of the eternal king to whom we lift our battle song. It's a war song. He is waging war against our sin and against his enemies and for our holiness. He is mighty in power. He is unthinkably powerful. And uh, we can follow him without fear. We can journey towards the crown that awakes the conquest. And so we sing, lead on, O king of might. And so that song sings the sovereign power and majesty and might of the King Jesus. So the first song is sweet. The second, or the last, is fierce. The first sings of rest. The last sings of war. The first sings of pouring out our souls. The last sings of girding up our loins for warfare. Each song, though, is directed to Jesus Christ. We sing to him because he is tender in mercy, and we sing to him because he is fierce in warfare. We sing to him for rest, and we sing to him for him to destroy our foes. And so the two songs really couldn't be any different, and yet they're singing of and to the same Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so that's what we're going to see in the text this morning, that these two realities of the great mercy and tenderness of Jesus Christ and the great power and might of Jesus Christ, they don't seem to fit together, but they do in the person of Christ. Uh, Revelation 5, you might think of, in the space of two verses, we see the conquering lion and the tender lamb who laid himself down. We see in Christ before whom every knee will bow, and we see in Christ the one who draws near in depths of tenderness to the brokenhearted. And so that's what we're going to see this morning, that we have one in our text who comes humbly riding on a peacetime donkey and then goes into the temple with violence, cleansing it. And so we're going to see him who is utterly merciful and tender and yet mighty in power. Let me read these verses, Luke uh, 19, 28 to 48. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, and on which, whom, uh, on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying its colt, the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt. They set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began rejoicing and praised God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. 
and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Let's pray. Oh God, how can we keep our way pure except by guarding it according to your word? God, send your spirit now with, so that with our whole hearts we may seek you, that we might not wander from your commands. Teach us to steer, store up your word in our hearts that we may not sin against you. Oh God, teach us your statutes. Your testimonies are more delightful than all riches. And so God, uh, we want them more than riches. God, we do not want to forget your word. And so come now by your spirit and teach it to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we get into 20 to 48, look a bit before that at the beginning of chapter 19. Uh, chapter 19 begins with the account of Zacchaeus. Jesus, or Luke, recounts uh, this instance so that we uh, might understand why Jesus came. And, and it says that he came because he came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus goes to this wretched man's home. He tells him that salvation has come to this house. And so we see this incredible mercy of Jesus, this tenderness, this drawing near. And so let me just ask, do you know the salvation? We need to always begin by considering our own salvation before the Lord. Do you know faith, living faith, true faith in Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ came to seek and save the lost. You cannot know the salvation until you know your lostness your separation and need of reconciliation. And so has Christ come to you and have you responded in faith to his mercy that saves you eternally? You can, you should, because Christ is a merciful and kind Savior who comes to all who call on him. And yet what follows that couldn't be any different. It's like a 10-degree day with a blizzard following a 70-degree sunny day like we know sometimes in the spring. After this incredible tenderness and mercy to Zacchaeus, Jesus tells a parable that reveals that he is a hated master coming to judge. Christ is the nobleman in this parable who distributes his own wealth to his slaves and who is hated by his own citizens. Christ is hated by many on earth. They hate him. They hate him. They hate him. They hate him. They, hate him. they scorn him. They mock him. It's always been such. The Jews hated him. Uh, and uh, Jesus is utterly unlike men today. He comes back after distributing the gifts. He doesn't pander. He doesn't make concessions. He doesn't uh, take the one who has. He doesn't take from the people who do have and give to those who don't in order to keep people happy. <laughs> he, he doesn't do that. He returns. And uh, we hear Again, the reality that Christ who died, who rose, who ascended is returning. And he is returning in judgment. He gives us gifts, abilities, talents, possessions, wealth, and he will return. And we'll have to give an account for those. And those who use what he's given by faith will receive great reward. 
those who don't, who refuse to use what God has given them for God's glory, all that they have will be taken from them and will be given to those who have done well with it. And then those who hate him will be destroyed before him. And so here we have at the very beginning of this chapter, this glimpse at the beginning of Christ's utter mercy and coming to Zacchaeus and his severity, his power. He's not, he's not playing. And that's setting you up for what's about to happen in what we know as the triumphal entry and his cleansing the temple, that Christ is simultaneously uh, tender and severe. He is kind and he is all-powerful. He is merciful and he's a judge coming in judgment. So what I want to do is just look at those two aspects of Christ. I want to look at him as king, a mighty king, a powerful king, and then as a tender, merciful savior. And so let's begin with Jesus as king. We see in our text, verses 28 to 48, that Jesus tells two of his disciples everything that's about to happen. Jesus is a king who knows all things. He knows what's going to take place. He knows where it's going to be. He knows the very words that are going to be said. He knows everything about it. He knows the animal. He knows what to tell the owner and for it to happen. And so let's not forget that. Jesus is an all-seeing king. So many times you and I are terrified of what the world, uh, what people are going to say of you. Just a few years ago, our own country and our world was rocked by the revelations of Edward Snowden of how our country was spying on us. Our country was pretending it's omniscience. They were using our own devices, the data that we were giving, in order to watch us even in our own homes through the, our own uh, phones and, and computers connected to the internet. The state, it seems, was omnipresent, all-seeing. The irony here, of course, is that those who were watching us are being watched. And we don't just mean by Snowden. Christ is the all-seeing, all-knowing God. He is keeping an account. And he is good. But let me urge you, you sometimes convince yourself that God doesn't see what you do in secret. You might even think that he doesn't know what you're saying in the very depths of your own heart. He does. We go to great lengths to hide our sin and shame, to keep it secret. Um, we do that from other people because we fear what people think more than what, we, what Christ thinks and sees. And so Christ's all-knowing, all-seeing power is meant to be both a comfort and a warning to his people. It's a comfort because he sees our difficulties. He is near. He is not far. His presence is the comfort and strengthen. But it's also a warning. It's also a warning We aren't ever isolated from God. There's no social distancing from God. He is near. Jesus mounts the colt. He goes near the descent of the Mount of Olives. The crowds worship him as king, as God from heaven. They take their precious possessions, their coats. They spread them on the donkey so he doesn't have to touch the animal himself. On the ground, they shout with loud voices with the great joy that Jesus the King who comes in the name of the Lord. He himself is peace from heaven. To him is due the highest glory in heaven and earth that can be given. You'll notice that the Pharisees understand what's going on. They, re- they ask Jesus to rebuke the disciples. Right? Why? Because they know that Christ is being worshipped as the all-powerful God and they think it's blasphemy. 
but Jesus refuses to rebuke his disciples. Just consider how gutsy Jesus is here. Consider how powerful he is here. He's God and he knows it. And he is more than willing to accept the praise of God because he is God. He will not placate these Pharisees. He, he won't um, yield to their demands. He won't appease them. In fact, he says, if they don't worship me, the rocks will. If, if the ones created uniquely to worship me won't, inanimate objects that I've created will. I will receive honor. Another way to say it, though, is if, if, if the rocks... Well, let, me, let me put it like this. What Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is, uh, you're dumber than the rocks. Right? You're dumber than the rocks. Your, your hearts are hard as stone. The rocks are more intelligent than you are. They, it, it, you won't fulfill your purpose than, than rocks will. Just consider Jesus there. You don't see many people like him. He tells it like it is. He is constantly putting to shame his enemies. He doesn't hold back. So Jesus is worshipped as the king because it's right. Now don't forget that you and I were made for this fact. We were made to worship God. The disciples here are doing what you and I were created for. God gave you and I ears and eyes and nerves and brains to take in this information, to process them. He gave us mouths and vocal cords and lungs for the very purpose of doing what the disciples here are, per- are doing. Notice the zeal. They praise God with a loud voice. They've seen the sovereign, powerful works of Jesus, and they strain their voices to worship him. Jesus is the object of all their worship because he is the sovereign and powerful king coming to save. So you and I should realize that we are worshipers. It isn't whether or not we will worship, it's what we will worship. You will always worship. You will always give glory to something or someone. It's whether or not what you're giving glory to is worthy of it. And we know, as in Romans 1, we are constantly tempted to worship that which is not God as if it is God. And so what is it that you enjoy and seek after more than Christ? What are you turning to during this season? What is your place of solace, of comfort? What's your go-to? Is it hours and hours of binge-watching? Is it food? Is it complaining? Is government your God and you just can't wait for your handout? Who is your God? The reality, of course, is that there is no God but God. There is no God but Jesus. There is no power as his. There is no wisdom as his. There is no beauty as his. There is no salvation but in him. And there is no satisfaction like that in Christ. And so our problem isn't that we don't worship. Our problem is that we worship that which is not Christ as if it is Christ. And so are you worshiping him during this season? Are you giving him glory Is your heart his? The last thing we see in this section of Jesus' power is that he goes to Jerusalem and after weeping, he laments that they did not know the hour of their visitation. They didn't know 
that the king had come. And then he goes right in to the center heart of the worship of Jerusalem, right into the temple, and drives out those who profane his name. He, as we read in Mark, overturns the table. Matthew tells that it is with the zeal uh, for the Father's house that he does this. Jesus is violent. He's not the out-of-control violence like a man angry who punches holes in drywall or kicks holes in doors and screams obscenities. But Jesus here isn't mild. He, his face was angry. His voice was loud. He was angry. He was violent. Jesus is not reluctant to stir up trouble. You might notice as you read the Gospels, Jesus goes out of his way to bring trouble to himself. He's doing it here again. He's confronting. He's bringing the fight to those who need it. This is his house. Notice that. My house shall be a house of prayer. Jesus is saying, this is my house. I am to be the one that is sought here. I am the one to be praised here, and you're using it to turn a dollar. You're using it wrongly, and he brings the fight to them. So sometimes we're tempted to see Jesus as this very kindly, mild gentleman who never raises his voice. It couldn't be farther from the truth. We see in Revelation that his voice thunders like many waters. Wonder, wonder if, if John is thinking of this moment. In Leviticus 14, we see that when a house has a contagion, when it has a nasty mold or a black fungus, it was, it, it, it was to be inspected and then cleansed. And then uh, sometime later, they were to return and inspect it again. And if it wasn't, it was to be destroyed not one stone left upon another. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's inspected his house. It has contagion. It has a contagion of false worship of money and praise of man. And Jesus cleanses it, and he promises to return again, not visibly, not the second coming. He promises that this, there'll be a day when there's not one stone left upon another in AD 70, Barely 40 years after this moment, this uh, temple and the city are pounded to the dust. That's the kind of king he is. That's the kind of king he is. That's what he's like. And so do you worship him as such? Do you fear him? I want to say how wonderful this is. He is king. He is Lord. He demands rightly your worship, your adoration, your wholehearted allegiance. And so, let me ask you, you and I are now, by God's unthinkable mercies, the temples of our God. He dwells within us by his spirit. What is there within you that needs cleansing and overturning? What greed... What covetousness. Just think, you've been promised to get a couple thousand dollars from the government. Is there a greedy desire for that in your heart? What do you love more than him? What needs to be cleansed from you? 
what needs to be cleansed from you? What is there dwelling within you that needs to be cleansed? Their pride. So we see in this text that Christ is the sovereign king, knowing all things, worthy of all worship, incredible in power, zealous for the glory of his father. And then we see that he is the king who weeps. I don't know if there's any more striking verse in the Bible than 1941. When Jesus draws near to the city, he weeps over it. Before we get there, uh, we all note that Jesus is riding a colt. He's riding a donkey. In wartime, kings rode mighty horses, war horses. When a king, though, wanted to come in peace, I think we see in Solomon's day, he rode a donkey. And so here, we see that the king is coming with intentions of peace. This mighty warrior has come in peace. He came, as we saw in Zacchaeus' account, to seek and to save the lost, to save. He came in mercy. Now, Christ's offer of peace isn't a open for debate or discussion. He comes in peace. He comes from heaven. You'll notice that when the disciples are praising him, they They say, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The peace that is in heaven came down in peace. Peace is found in him. So he comes with an offer of peace, brothers and sisters. The one that you and I are by nature at enmity with comes not to destroy you yet, but to offer eternal peace with him. And so do you know this peace with him? Do you have faith in the Son of God and so have peace with God the Father? Have you been reconciled to him? This time of peace is continuing even now. Christ's second coming is delayed so that many would come to him. In Revelation 19, however, we see that Jesus will come again and it won't be on a colt, it won't be on a donkey, it will be on a mighty horse of war. He will destroy his enemies. All who will not bow now will bow then. And so you and I will bow. It will either be for eternal life and peace or for eternal ruin. He is willing. And so don't delay. Don't delay. Don't you see how fragile this world is and how fragile our lives are? Do you not see how quickly your life can change? And so you may think you have time. You may think you have time to make peace with Jesus Christ, the sovereign God who offers peace. Are you sure that you have that time? Are you so certain? Now is the time for peace. Friends, brothers, sisters, now is the time for peace. So turn to him now. So this king coming in peace draws near the city, and he weeps over it. That term weeping there is uh, a term used for wailing. It's a sobs. This is no gentle spring rain, but a torrent, a flood of gut-wrenching, heart-broken wailing. 
And so Christ, the sovereign, all-powerful God of all gods, breaks and weeps over the condition of this city. They refuse him who is their peace. The Son of God has visited them, the very thing that they were waiting for, they refuse to see. And so in this great king, in this one who is infinite power, is infinite kindness and mercy. In him who is sovereign and powerful is unthinkable patience and gentleness. And so this is our God. This is what he's like. Now, some of you love maybe more his sovereign power and you trend in that direction. <clears throat> you like that he's not playing. You enjoy this awesome, spectacular display of his might. And you're not as kind as you should be. You're not as gentle. You think the world needs to be dealt with rigidly. You, as a husband, might not know kindness for your wife, but you sure are firm. Or maybe as a parent, your children very rarely meet your patience, but they definitely meet the wooden spoon frequently. You, you need to consider more Christ's patience and kindness. Others of you think that Jesus is just this meek, mild, gentle soul who never says anything cross ever to anyone. He's only nice. He... He has no spine. You think that the way to be a Christian is to constantly yield no matter what. You stand for very little, but you are nice and you are kind and you think that that is the whoop and wharf of spirituality is to always be nice. Well, you need a dose of Christ's zeal for his Father's honor and glory. And so isn't it wonderful that we can come to Christ who is both willing to receive us in mercy and actually able to save us in power? He is both. He is both in one person. He is both able to save you because he has unthinkable power. Nothing and no one can pluck you from his hands because he has the power to keep you. And he is loving and he is gentle and he is tender. You can go to him in your brokenheartedness because he actually draws near to you. And both of these realities are in him. And so as we go then to sing and pray, consider him like this and draw near to him. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to draw near to your son who has drawn so near to us? Would you help us to tremble before him, to fear him, and to enjoy his great tenderness and bring to him all of our troubles and sorrows. That we would see in him the one who is more than sufficient to defend us from all that we need, to keep us safe, protect us, because he is both powerful and willing. Forgive us, too, for having an idolater's view of him. We trend towards one or the other, we emphasize one over the neglect of the other. And so we 
build then for ourselves and maybe for others a, 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 a far inadequate picture of his sovereign power and high mercy. And so God help us to see him as both and to worship him as such. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the charge is this. Please do pray for those in government, our leaders. And I would encourage you, contact them and let them know you're praying for them. That's the charge. Pray for them and contact them. Let's not be those who only contact them when we have a disagreement or when we're upset. Let's be praying for our governor and our mayors and, and the president and others. And let's contact them and let them know we're praying for them. Now, the peace of God who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord, and I love you.